It is so sad that we couldn't stop our consideration here because an unthinkable thing has happened. There is no conceivable reason why mankind should have rebelled against God. There's not a particle of logic. There is not any deficiency on the part of God's manifestation or God's efforts to keep man in the position of intelligence. Here we have an utter absurdity where little tiny man with the endless prospects of experiencing the love of God decides he doesn't want to. And thus a colossal, unthinkable tragedy has come into the moral world that God had created so beautifully. God had given us the equipment to climb a ladder of faith and understanding. Which ladder has no end? It's always up and up into the beautiful serenity of the being of God. And when we Christians have experienced something of the serenity of God, we see the utter absurdity of little old selfish gratification. And so God had planned such beautiful things for mankind. But there was a great risk in creating moral beings in his own image. A great risk in giving man creativity in his will. But if God did not run this risk, then there, of course, could be no worship. There, of course, could be no devotion. There, of course, could be no virtue in all of God's creation. If everything was instinctive and caused in one way or another, everything would be routine, everything would be mechanical, everything would be programmed, and the excitement of the moral universe would not exist. So we mentioned that God ran a great risk because if man can't disobey, neither can he obey. And now we say the contrary wise, if man can't obey, neither can he disobey. And the whole theological system that has come to be that man can't obey must mean that he can't disobey either. And so God created mankind with the serenity of self-causation, with all the abilities to evaluate what is valuable, in addition to all the persuasion that God had obviously exercised to keep man from making the wrong decisions. And so we have to title this consideration Rebellion against the loving and reasonable moral government of God. We always want to use those two words concerning God's dominion, loving and reasonable. We have seen that God has chosen to be loved, which of course means that he's not going to do anything selfishly or arbitrarily. We have been delighting ourselves that God is unthinkably intelligent, and we have all the evidences of the immensity of God's intelligence. And so God is going to be reasonable in all his requirements. He's never going to ask us to do one thing that we can't do. 
And so this is the picture that the scripture in our experience gives us concerning God. And so we have the sad consideration that little tiny man with the prospect of endless enlargement now decides he wants to stop this enlargement. He wants to tend to himself. He doesn't want to be intelligent anymore. He wants to blank out the beauty of intelligence. Isn't it strange the ideas that have come to exist in a set of values? The, the, the idea generally is the less you use your mind, the better. And uh, the less you have to think, the better. The, the concentration is on gratification. And in doing this, mankind blocks out the exceeding beauty of life because the exceeding beauty of life is to learn to delight to think and to perceive beautiful, objective facts. And we can have a lot of interesting experiences in the observation of all the things around us, as we've said, and learning the mysteries of the intelligence that's put behind the many things we see. And so now God wants to teach us in his scripture what happened. We saw that uh, we have a, we, mankind had a guilty conscience. And thus when the beautiful was, uh, was somewhat marred uh, by the inconsistencies, mankind's conscience affirms guilt in this matter and longs for an explanation as to what happened, as to why God's beautiful universe should be thus tainted uh, with contradictions and disturbances. And so God wants to explain to us exactly what happened, and we need to understand exactly what happened if we're going to have the solution to it. Years ago, we young engineers... I trailed around Dr. Charles Kettering at the conventions to learn what we could from his brilliant mind in engineering and science. He was vice president of research at General Motors Corporation, a large organization under him. It is reported that he was very rigid in signing appropriations of finance. And as his subordinates would come to him and uh, request certain the quantities of money to do different things in research that they thought needed to be done in their different departments. He would reportedly send them back to their desks to work over exactly what they wanted to find out. He was not going to approve large sums of money merely for some things that leaders thought they needed to know. He would rather send them back to work over why they needed to know this and to define exactly what they wanted to find out. Because he said, when you have defined the problem you're trying to solve, you've gone a long way towards solving it. And that is a very vital thing for us to understand. We know that the gospel and reconciliation is to solve the problems of sin. But before we can hope to understand what reconciliation of the gospel is, we must understand exactly what happened in man's revolt 
And sadly, in our consideration, every one of us have joined this revolt. So we need to understand what we have done to enter into this revolt against the loving and reasonable measures and kindness of God. And so we see the beauty of God's plans and His great desire to help us in our situation. We have in Romans 1 a very sad description, do we not? Romans 1 is bringing under guilt everyone who has never heard of the Bible, has never heard of biblical revelation. And the apostle concludes that they are without excuse. So no one has any complaint against God for not recognizing the supremacy and existence of God from the things that are made. And we have these penetrating words, do we not? And probably the clearest definition in the New Testament of sin, as you no doubt realize, is 1 John 3, 4, where we read that sin is lawlessness. Sin is a refusal to be regulated by truth that has been expressed out of God's intelligence. It is a refusal to consider a self-discipline and a guidance according to what is right. And so we have some very sad statements here in Romans 1. They change the truth of God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Mankind took, Adam took himself and all of us since have rejected the truth of God that the Holy Spirit has been impressing upon our minds and we have erected the lie of self-importance. We have erected the lie of me first. And we have lived according to this principle. And we have fortified our minds as best we could. And if God does not come and correct our thinking, we never will see things clearly again. Because the mind is so sensitive that if we reject truth, the second time is easier to reject it. And the third time is still easier. And the fourth time is still easier. And every time we reject truth then, the mind never recovers. And we sink deeper and deeper into the bondage of our selfishness. And so here we have God coming to mankind who is busy about their own selfish ways. The scripture says no one seeking after God. No one is knocking at God's door wanting entrance and reconciliation. We have all bogged ourselves down in the distorted mind condition, so we have a complete wrong evaluation of values. And so they took the truth of God which they knew and didn't want it any longer. And then verse 28, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God had to allow something that they wanted. He had to give them over to a depraved or distorted mind to do those things which are not proper. 
And God has to say, if you don't want the light, I have to give you what you want, darkness. And so man chose to enter into darkness. The darkness, of course, is a refusal to open the perception as to reality and to create our own little orbit of concepts, to reinforce our own selfish position. Now, if you have followed me, and I know you have, we have entered into a very dark cloud which covers the whole world of thinking. And we are thankful for the Word of God that wants to come to us in this dark, distorted cloud of self-importance and try to show us exactly what happened so we may understand what God's recovery measures would be like. We have to have some preliminary thinking before we get into the catastrophe. And so we have your item one concerning holiness and sin, which I am pleased that you have been studying. And we say that these are free, voluntary acts of will or states of mind. And although strongly influenced, are not caused by any internal force of nature, tendency, or instinct, nor by persuasion from external sources. Now, immediately you recognize that this is a rather contrary statement to much theological influence that you have no doubt been under, just like I have been under. Because we're supposed to be under causation and force. Uh, man is supposed to sin because he was born that way. And so you have the quaint little expression oftentimes, men are not sinners because they sin, but they sin because they're sinners. Giving the idea that we're born with a causation which in itself is supposed to be sin. And since we're born with this causation, there's only one thing we can do, and that's fulfill the causation. And so here you have a concept that is spread over the theological world from Augustine's day, off and on. And so we, we see we have to rethink our position. In addition to this, you have the concept of a divided personality. And you even have the concept of demon-possessed Christians, supposedly whereby one part of us may be possessed by God and another part of us may be possessed by Satan. And you have the idea oftentimes in theology two causes now. One part of which can't do anything but obey God, supposedly, and one part of which can't do anything but disobey God. And so we're subject of causation. Maybe I didn't grapple with that about 45 years ago with great intensity trying to put together a harmonious, psychological, understandable system. And so we need to understand the serenity of responsibility here that God has given us. And that we are able to recognize truth and to make our choice as to what we want to do with it. And it is our choice that establishes character. Character is a deposit. Character helps us to continue doing what we've chosen to do. But character begins by choice. And so we establish our character. 
by our choices and build our character about con upon continuous choices, of course. And so we say here that moral character is not something back of the will. Now this you have to think with me upon because we have all these theological writings uh, indicating that, that the sin is back of the will and causing the will. As I said, it seems like much of theology is based on causation. God's supposed to have these entities which cause him to act. We are born with these causations which cause us to act, as we've said. Jesus was not born with the causation, so he didn't act wrong. And so on. It seems like you have such a concept of causation going through theology. Uh, which, of course, makes it uh, meaningless and removes moral excitement and moral choice and moral evaluation. And so God is concerned with what we're doing with ourselves. We try to represent our personality as a complete unit. Something that we, we have the opportunity of living in. And, and what we do with our unit depends upon our choices. And so it is our choice then that establishes character. And God is concerned with what we're doing with our equipment. Well, how are we living? And so we say here that moral action and compulsory action are absolutely opposite, aren't they? What is free cannot be compelled, and what is compelled cannot be free. Things just get that simple, don't they? No, thanks be to God. We're not talking anything new whatsoever. And it's been a very great excitement to me to spend many years in diligent historical research to see what has taken place in time past and to see the, the glorious revivals that have come when there has been a rethinking of some of these issues and a facing of the great realities that are before us. So scripture addresses man, does it not, in, res in a responsible way. So as we have said, uh, we formulate our character by our choices, and character has a deposit in it. We have this, the law of habit, don't we? And so we have a deposit in our being as a result of what our choices have made. And our deposit helps us to keep on doing what we have chosen to do. And so here is the law of habit. It's, easier to, it's always easier then to keep on doing what we've been doing. And praise the Lord, the law of the habit goes plus two as well as minus. And the longer we learn to live with dear sweet Jesus, the easier it gets. So the, the law of habit goes both ways. Praise the Lord. And so we have the scripture addressing man in this way, don't we? And we give you a few passages there. Well, we have one very important passage. We just have to have a few samples in our limited time. It is hoped that in your lifetime, dear friends, you'll spend months over the passages of this manual. And you'll take each chapter and grapple with it. And look up some of these passages and possibly write out some of the most important ones as you meditate upon them. To see whether these propositions are really as substantiated from the scripture. Here in Deuteronomy 11, 26 to 28, we have this uh, voluntary choice. See, uh, Moses says, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you will listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I'm commanding you today, and a curse, if you do not listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I'm commanding you today by following other gods which you have not known. 
So here we have a positive choice set forth. We might look at Joshua, that dear, humble servant of the Lord. And we have in 24.15, And if it's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Here obviously is a choice set forth, isn't it? Then we've referred to Isaiah 1, where God wants to reason with us. Then he reasons with, with us on the two options here. And it is up to us to decide what options we're going to take. And so you have, in verse 18, come out us reason together, says the Lord. Then he talks about the glorious salvation that he wants to provide. Then verse 19, if you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So obviously, there is a responsible decision that we must make. And uh, we have, for example, Jesus coming in John chapter 1, where he is appealing for acceptance here. And this is a very moving passage. There's a neuter gender, as you probably realize. He came to his own. And again, if you look in the margin of your American Standard Bible, his own things, his own possessions. This is a neuter gender. He's coming to his own property, in other words. Jesus is represented as a creator, coming to his own personalities that he's made in the whole situation. And those that were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him. And as we have said, the important word there is the word him. You can't receive Jesus partly. You can't choose what part you want of Jesus, of course. He thinks it's a good thing to have him. How can he have a divided acceptance of some kind? And may he receive to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so we have these positive assertions. Jesus was very disturbed in John 5.40, when there seemed to be an interest in receiving him. But he said here, you are unwilling to come to me, that you may have life. And then we have used some other passages too. Now we come to what we might call in our day a landmark decision. When the Supreme Court of the United States is making an important decision, it's going to have some very definite ramifications, we say. They call it a landmark decision. And here is one of those landmark decisions of our understanding, which we must have a little parenthesis here to consider. We are saying that moral actions or acts of will are positive and definite. And in no sense can be partial. In that an object of pursuit can be partly chosen and partly not chosen at the same time. The will always acts as a unit in a given instance. Now what we mean by this uh, divided personality is represented by this little chart here. And this is what uh, we would call a, the theory of mixed motive or mixed moral character. You will notice later on in your manual, we won't turn to it now, 
We have such a representation. We have the zero point, which we call time or duration. In other words, we're talking about time here. We're talking about actions. Then on the, the plus part of this little sketch, we call love or, obe or obedience. And this is virtue, isn't it? A virtuous choice. The lower part of this sketch we call selfishness or disobedience. And here is the idea of many theological writers. This is not in your manual, you may perceive. And uh, it seems that most evangelical theological writers entertain this idea of a mixed motive. And so to begin with, they conceive that we are somewhat in this balance. Uh, most of our motivation is negative. They admit that. But they will not admit that it's all negative. And so they insist that there must be a positive aspect in every motivation. And so you have earnest, godly servants of the Lord uh, talking like this. I know that there is much virtue in your life. I know that you're trying to do many good things. I know that you're sacrificing for God in some extent and so on. I know that you're trying to help your fellow men and so on. But you do have a deficiency that you need salvation over. And I want you to come to God for the deficiency of your life, knowing that there are lovely things about you. This is the concept of a mixed motive. And of course, as you read the New Testament and the Old too, this idea is not reinforced. Because the Scripture comes to us and tells us that everything we have done before we came to Jesus was pure, unmixed selfishness. And when we begin to think about turning from sin, it is not to turn to virtue, it is to escape the penalty of hell which we think our sins are going to bring us into. We have so bogged down our lives in selfish pursuit, we can't think of anything to begin with except selfishness. And we will see in the beautiful process of salvation and reconciliation, there absolutely has to be an emergence out of the me first into the God first. There absolutely has to be an emergence out of the darkness of selfish pursuit into the objectivity of truth. Why, this is so obvious on every hand, isn't it? There's no conceivable way why the very key passage of this whole study we're having was that rich passage in 1 Timothy uh, chapter 2, 3, and 4, you remember we've read. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now this word knowledge is an intensified word. It is the word to know by experience, but it has a prefix to it, a prepositional prefix, which means a thorough knowledge grounded in experience. So God's concept of salvation is a total awakening to the complete erroneous life we've lived, as we've lived for ourselves. And so you see how important it is to evaluate such a psychological question as we're talking about. And you know right away how the apostle in Romans 3 sums up the matter. 
that there is no such thing as any virtuous action in any one of us until we meet dear Jesus. And he draws us out of the miserable sphere of selfishness into the beautiful, serene, objective sphere of truth. And why, when we see the truth in Jesus and we emerge from the old, miserable self-pursuit with our hand upon our pulse trying to do, wonder what we can make ourselves happy with, and oh, my, 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 what a struggle. And then we begin to see what's really worth living for. We say, dear sweet Jesus, lift me out and let me live a life a beautiful objectivity and love. So what an important decision we have here before us. And then as you read different devotional books, I used to read them by the dozens years ago. And most of the ones I read say we never do emerge completely out of the sphere of selfishness in any action. They say there's always a residue of selfishness in every professed virtuous action. Now I asked you the other lecture to begin thinking on a very, very important issue. Is it possible at this hour for us to face the scope of our mind and decide and have an attitude of will that's acceptable to God. Now we as Christians are talking about a resultant purity because of what the Lord Jesus and the Holy Spirit did in our lives. And salvation introduces us into this new wonderful experience, the washing of regeneration, the purification of our life, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit and we're started out in our Christian life with springing our feet in an excitement with the Lord, aren't we? And so when we talk about purity and acceptability, we're not talking about a self-generated purity, are we? We're talking about a productive result of the great, wonderful grace of God. Now here's basically the question. Is the will a unit or is it a mixed situation? Is it possible at this hour to take our facilities, have our comprehension, evaluate our plans? I'm sure all of us in this room have no plans to do anything that's contrary to God's will. Now the question, I have no plans to do anything next week, nor do you, I'm sure. Against your conscience, against the things you know God does want you to do. Now the question is, as we face objectively and intelligently what we plan to do in our wills, is this a state of acceptability to God or not? Most of these writers says no. The will can't do this. There's always a remnant of selfishness in every virtuous action. And this is very depressing to be sure. And immediately you see the many scriptures that come in mind to counteract this idea. God looks at the heart. For heart condemns not, we have confidence. All these lovely passages that come before us. So this is a mighty important decision to try to make. You notice later on in the maturity chart, toward the end of the manual, we don't represent anything like this. We have a single line that either is above or below the, low, low the zero point. 
It's either in the area of virtue or the area of selfishness, but not both. You see how repentance cannot be preached very intelligently by those who hold this view. Because repentance is some kind of a change of proportions. It's not an emergence from below the line into the positive of being above the line. Like it would seem that the scriptures would declare. It is rather some kind of a change of proportions. And what change of proportions is repentance? What is it, a 40%? 60 And this is a lovely doctrine as far as popularity. You can be a rather important pastor if you believe this. Because people will always agree to change their proportions a little bit if you don't ask them to make a revolutionary change in their whole life. And they'll always agree to change it by 5 or 10% as a result of a ministry. And this becomes very easy, very popular. Build your big churches. Worry, worry about where you're going to put the people. But when you like Jesus, come and say, if you're not willing for me to have all of you, and if you're not willing to have all of me that you can digest, you have no life in you. Now when you come with that presentation, it's quite different, isn't it? Then you might get the result Jesus had. When he says, Master, we didn't know you wanted all this. The price is too high. I'm not willing to pay this kind of price. I don't want you that much. Friends, what do we want to do in our lives? Do we want to drift along and be popular? Or do we want to deny ourselves and be useful? This is the question I faced years ago. And dear Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. He was thinking of being useful, wasn't he? Not being popular. And so I was so interested in the research in this area that took place at Oberlin College. That was one of the most serene institutions of recent centuries, to be sure. I've referred to the great revivals in the early 1800s. We have uh, the great revivals in the 1820s and the early 30s. I said the great characteristic of these revivals was the leading citizens of the communities were the first ones to be converted. And they really turned their lives over to God with great intelligence. And so they, were, they felt the call of God upon them. And they wanted a place where they could study. And since Finney was the great mover in these revivals, they said, won't you stop your evangelistic travels and settle down someplace and teach us so we can prepare ourselves for the Lord's work. And this was probably the most elevated group of biblical researchers, students who ever have assembled in recent centuries. And so finally, they agreed to establish a college in Ohio and cut down the trees and began the, the Oberlin College. And the town of Oberlin, of course, was built around the college. And here was a, indeed a serene gathering. And they're out here with the call of God. They brought their intelligence along with them. They brought their pursuit of mind along with them. 
And so here was a diligent place of real research. And here was the procedure in Finney's theological class. He says, now, ladies and gentlemen, because here was one of the first institutions in America that had no distinction of sex or creed or color or background or anything. The only thing which required was that you now love the Lord. And so this was what Finney insisted upon him. He was going to come out here. There couldn't be all these restrictions and, and uh, matters that had been so common. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to consider the matter of the will would be a proposition. And they're studying sanctification. What is sanctification? You see the immensity of this problem? Is sanctification a change in the percentages? Or is it a maintaining of a state of devotion? And of course, the students in the whole town are researching on sanctification in the late 1830s. There's nobody in the whole place that doesn't profess to be a Christian, to be sure. And so they're trying to prepare themselves to serve the Lord. How can we become more mature in our Christian life was the great research. And so this great issue comes. Is sanctification changing the percentages? Or is it a maintaining of a state of devotion without interruption? And so they said, now, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to study this subject, and here's what you do. Every one of you, go to your Bible, see what you can find. Every one of you are going to have an opportunity before the class to, to say what you find. Then after this has gone on, so everyone has an opportunity, then I will take all the things you have said, Finney would say, and I'm going to add my conclusions to them, and I'm going to present the summary of what we decided. So this is very exciting to do research at Oberlin. I spent about five months full-time there in the libraries and in research about 25 years ago and had a great, wonderful time with the Lord there, you can be sure. So you look into the student journals and they're talking about the decisions of will and they're researching, praise the Lord. What a wonderful pursuit. A real intelligent discussions of issues. And of course they came to the conclusion that you can't have a divided will. That at a given time, we're either open to truth or we're not. We're either open in our perspective and admittance of what we see with a good conscience or we are not. And you can't have this mixture, was the conclusion. Well, uh, I refer at the footnote of this supplementary article to a very important chapter in Finney's theology, the unity of moral action. And this was a result of this study and uh, Finney has this very important summary of this whole matter. And sometime you want to avail yourself of that important chapter. And the conclusion was that you cannot have a divided character. You cannot have a mixed motive. We are either in a state of acceptance of our understanding at a given time or we're not. We're either willing to submit to the light we have Notice we say the light we have, not the light somebody else has. And let's be a little bit careful here that we don't apply the light we may have to the light someone else has. Now, there were certain to be many, many important issues there couldn't be any conceivable difference of opinion upon. But other issues there might be, according to various backgrounds and so forth. And you get into the mission field. Let's carefully remember that. Let's not immediately try to spend our time uh, revising society. 
Let us spend our time trying to reach the souls with the gospel. Let us not begin by applying our different uh, methods of living and all the things that we may have formulated to them. Because their background and conscience may be different than ours. Let us, of course, try to lead them toward the objective way of living. But they can be saved with a good conscience that we couldn't be, perhaps, because of our enlightenment. And so let us remember this. This is our conscience that we have that God's concerned with. And so I wanted to verify this. And so I got together every passage I could think of over a considerable period of time. And to see what it would have to say in this matter. And that is what we tabulate here. And your page two now and your item D under two in parentheses. We had all these scriptures written out on little slips of paper. We're spending hours and days, I guess, uh, thinking and moving. You can imagine a big surface here. These are passages that look like they have something to say about the choice of will. We want to see, can we find some contrasting? Yes, here's one that says this, and here's one that says this. Looks like we could bring them together for contrast. Here's a couple of more passages that seem to be related to each other. Let's bring them together. Then uh, as we have uh, certain pairs of contrast, then uh, let's try to make some headings for ourselves. And so, well, it looks like here's a group of scriptures that have the same idea. Well, let's make ourselves a heading. This is what we call inductive research, isn't it? This is what's going on all over industry. Of course, in every profession, every conceivable way. And that's the way these ten items have been assembled here. And you are to read them by way of contrast, are you not? Uh, well, let me just go down a couple of them uh, without having time to go very far. We have a first grouping of Scripture. We're either in a state of separation from uh, or in direct consciousness of God's manifest presence. Doesn't seem to be any mixture here, does it not? Or does it? And uh, we have the different situations, and we go down the number of the listing there. Well, we enumerate Ephesians 4.18, alienated from the life of God. Second Peter 1.4 talks about partakers of the divine nature. Here's one state of separation, one state of, of partaking experience, experientially. We have read uh, 1 John 5.12, he who is having the Son is having the life. He who is not having the Son is not having the life. So that passage was stand alone because we have both concepts in one passage. Look like a certain attitude uh, results in a certain relationship, doesn't it? And so we go down the line. Then we have some scriptures talking about darkness and light. And obviously you can't have both of them. And you pass from one state to another. And we must read the great summary of Jesus in this matter. We have Matthew 6, uh, 22 to 24, where Jesus tells us we can't have a divided personality. We're either in total submission to God up to our knowledge or we're not. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye be bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or possessions or earthly attachments. There's got to be a supremacy, Jesus said. And so he indicates the simplicity, does he not, of our choice, of our willingness to open our hearts and our lives to the Lord. We have a group of passages where either good or bad in our character. 
And Jesus talked about the good tree and the evil tree, didn't he? And uh, we have the results of life too. We have the, the statement obeying and disobeying. You can't partly obey and partly disobey, the scripture indicates. So here we have one attitude of submissiveness to God's revealed will, a state of obedience. And of course, the Christian is represented as obeying God. Then you have the contrary wise disobedience. And here we must read a very, very important passage from Paul, Romans chapter 6 and verses 16 to 18. Here we have it very clear that we cannot have a divided will. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? And here are the options, whether of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. So we're either choosing a self-supremacy or an intelligent supremacy. And there can't be any mixture here. Then he talks about salvation. These three verses are so rich in content, as you remember. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart, the will, to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So the Apostle Paul spent hours and hours with people trying to go over what salvation was. And so he committed them to his presentation of what salvation was. None of this quickie procedure we have so often practiced in our day. He, he prayerfully committed the truth to them for their consideration. Then he says you became obedient to the truth that was presented to you. And then having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Oh, the serene simplicity and beauty of such a passage as this. We are living supremely for temporal eternal values, as we read from dear Jesus. And we have such a simple passage in 1 John 2.15, do we not? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man is loving the world, a present tense here, the love of the Father is not in him. So here's an obvious simple division. If my excitement consists in earthly pursuit of any nature, earthly success, earthly this or that, possessions, features of personality, any of these things, the love of the Father is not in me. Indicating a plain supremacy, does it not? And so we have the concept of, of impenitence and penitent. We were unwilling to recognize our situation. And then we turned and were willing to. We have the idea of the foolish and the wise. Jesus talked about the foolish man who built his house on the sand. He didn't take time to think things over. He was quick to do something. Then he talks about the establishing the foundation of the rock, the rock of truth, the rock of thought. And we have to do either one. We're either defiled or purified, a very penetrating expression. At Titus 1.15, their mind and conscience is defiled. Then we have the statement in this same passage, to the pure all things are pure. Of course, it is the grace and love of God that purifies we're either in bondage to sin or delivered from sin by the grace of God. And then item 10 gets very close in our prayer life, doesn't it? We're either in a state of doubt or a state of faith concerning certain things. And we know when we have faith and we know when we don't. 
So here we have a simplicity of approach. So it appears from these scriptures that we cannot have a divided will. But there is a supremacy. And this is what God evaluates and uh, considers. Now we have at the bottom of your page two uh, some thoughts which you have been considering. The different kind of actions of will. And we say that all actions of will are related, but not all actions are of the same importance. And uh, here in old uh, discussions of this matter, you find these two words. The ultimate decision and the supreme decision. And so here is the option that we have in our life. And this gets very simple. We either choose to be objective, open our eyes wide to observation of truths, and are willing to conform our lives to what is true, or we choose to be subjective and make ourselves our own orbiting center. As to what is worthwhile living for. Are we going to live for ourselves? Are we going to live for truth? The Christian, of course, is described as one who has emerged from living for self to be living for truth, which is exceedingly beautiful and unthinkably lovely. So here are the simple concepts of division here of the supremacy of choice. Then as a result of our supremacy, we make all kinds of subordinate choices based upon our supremacy. And here we have a wide latitude of choices, do we not? Depends upon so many things. Depends upon our constitution. Depends upon our environment, our early experiences in life. The evidences we've been up against as to whether God is true or not. And if you've been privileged to be raised in a godly praying home like I was, there are certain things you don't dare get mixed up with. That's all as to that. There's no virtue in our not being mixed up with these things. We merely made the decision that God is true. The impressions were great there. And we were rather persuaded that sin was going to have a payday. And so we say, well, now is the thing worth it? And we were impressed that there were consequences to certain things. So we turned away from the things because we were afraid of the consequences. Others do not have this background and thus may choose a different area. Of, of, a, of a selfish choice. Here Jesus talked about those who love to pray. Isn't it all right to love to pray? The trouble is they love to pray in the marketplace where people would admire their spirituality. And so this was their way of self-gratification, loving to pray in the marketplace. Jesus said they have the reward. That's all is to it. Just what's coming to them right here. And this was their way of selfish gratification. The Apostle Paul we know nothing against his life externally. He was a religious zealot who, who, who desired the worship of Judaism. He aimed to be the supreme leader, and doubtless was, of Judaism. The, the mental genius and the spiritual genius of Judaism. And so he has himself erected at the top of Judaism. And he wants everybody to look up at his greatness. So this is his form of selfish gratification. These are his subordinate choices. And before his conversion, of course, it was entirely selfish. And so we have the different breadth of subordinate choices to pursue our selfishness as to what we think will gratify us most. And friends, I don't doubt this was your experience. When I came to Christ as a boy of 14, 
the Holy Spirit bore down with me in conviction of the things I wanted to do and I didn't dare do because of what I was afraid would happen to me. And the whole business of virtue evaporated. And I saw that I was concerned with myself. And I turned away from certain things just because I was afraid it would happen to me. Not what would happen to God. Or what would happen to others. What happened to me. A self-orbiting concern. And so we see that every single one of us have made this choice of selfishness. And we've chosen all kinds of means by which we think will make us the most happy. But all of us are in the sphere of selfishness. Before we meet dear Jesus... And he must go to the root of the matter, mustn't he? And so there must be a change in supreme choice in salvation. Now we have to bring to pass our subordinate choices. I made my reservations to come to Switzerland seven weeks ago to benefit a little bit on their, on their offers. I didn't re-decide this thing. This was decided. All I do now is watch the calendar and the clock. And so you, you make some subordinate choices and then you have to bring them to pass, which we have to call something. I call them resultant choices. Some of the older writings call them executive volitions. Now there's no moral character in executive volitions, is there? And now let's go through the next section very briefly. And this is very, very painful of the highest order. What kind of choices are we to look at to establish character? Obviously, not to result in choices. In other words, if we see somebody going to church on Sunday morning carrying a Bible, that doesn't prove anything, does it? That merely indicates a result in choice to do this. The question God is concerned with, why are we doing that? We might be doing that to make ourselves important. We might be doing that to persuade ourselves that we're on our way to heaven. And so we may be doing all of this out of a purely selfish motive. And so where do we establish character? Not by resultant choices. Not by looking at the subordinate choices either. Why do we want to be Bible students? Why do we want to have some degrees? Do we want these things to be recognized? This could be purely selfish. We might want to be Bible students to attract attention to ourselves, mightn't we? Which, of course, would be purely selfish. And, of course, we never will see the beauty of God's truth in this way because the Holy Spirit's not going to work with us in that way, is it? And so we come down to the ultimate choice as, as the important thing in, de, in deciding character, do we not? And look at the bottom of your page here, of your page three, the, the many, many scriptures we have assembled in this area. And so the scripture comes to us and, and uh, indicates that the supremacy of the will is the thing that, that God is concerned with. Why are we doing what we are doing? And we're either doing what we're doing because we love ourselves and trying to further our own happiness, or we're doing it because we love the Lord Jesus Christ and want to give ourselves for Him to try to serve Him at any cost. 
And this is the only thing that means anything with God, is it not? Remember, we read that sad passage from Jesus in Matthew 7, 21 and 23. Here we have the record that many think they're serving God. But evidently they were serving God for selfish reasons. And Jesus said, I never knew you. I never came to have an experience with you. You never did make a total abandonment to me, Jesus said. And so we come down to the essence of God's evaluation. So God looks through all that we do and sees the motivation. And oh, how he loved God for this. And we can take ourselves and all that we have and just give ourselves to our dear sweet Savior, can't we? And says, Lord, you're so good to me. I just want to serve you. Will you teach me how I can serve you? And here's the serenity of simplicity, is it not? How beautiful to come to Jesus and say, Now, sweet Jesus, I don't want anything today. I want to come to you to tell you I love you. And I want to come to you to ask you to guide me on how I can show my love for you. Isn't it sweet to have a simple motivation before God? Not try to be great. Not try to be important. Not try to be successful. But try to be useful. Dear sweet Jesus. And serve him with our whole heart. Isn't that lovely that God evaluates us? Not by our accomplishments, but by our motivation. And this is what we have in this word heart. You notice we give you quite a few passages at the bottom of your page three. We have said that we don't think we have a spiritual heart anywhere. This is the center of our personality, it seems to be. Just as the physical heart is the center of the body, so there's the center of our personality. And that is in the motivation of our choice. And so God examines the heart, does he not, to establish values. And there has to be a seeking the Lord with all the heart. Uh, when Samuel is finding David, God says, concerning all the impressive sons that Jesse had, he hasn't come yet. There's one out there in the field who has a heart for me. And he's the one I want. God doesn't look at the outside. He told Samuel, God looks at the heart. And so we have the different situations, don't we? Jesus said, out of the heart proceeds these things. Here in Acts 8, we have, a, we have Simon who wanted spiritual gifts for selfish reasons. What he wanted was good. He wanted spiritual gifts. But he wanted to make them attached to himself. And so Peter said, your heart is not right in the sight of God. You want a good thing for selfish reasons. And so we're so grateful, are we not, to God who looks into our personality and we have the privilege of humbling ourselves before our lovely Savior and then trying our very best, be like dear Mary, she's done what she could. Isn't that a lovely motto for us, friends? Do what we can. So we say that sin is not some abstract something that invades and lodges somewhere in our personality, but it's rather an orderly sequence of wrong choices and conduct involving our whole personalities, which we have launched out upon and energetically persist in until we bow in repentance at the feet of the loving Savior. Oh, how simplifying this has been to my whole area of thought. I commend it to your thinking.